This message was recorded at North 2012, an event organised by Christ Central, part of New Frontiers. You can find out more about Christ Central by visiting our website, ChristCentralChurches.org. We're going to continue our series in the life of Cain. Uh, the, um, for those of you who weren't here yesterday, I'm calling this God's plans to change the world, a different perspective. If we could start the PowerPoint, please. God's plans to change the world, a different perspective. And uh, I, yesterday we talked about how uh, in the book of Genesis, it's both the seedbed of God's promises to transform the world, and it is also written to give a different world view to uh, originally the people of Israel as they came out of Egypt, having been 400 years in uh, Egyptian culture, and therefore adopted the worldview of that culture. And the book of Genesis was written by Moses to set that right and put down what God had done from the very beginning. And, uh, God, and we looked at how God was going to change the world. Um, we looked yesterday at Cain and Abel and how through a sacrifice, how through blood that was better than Abel, those who were like Cain sent into the far distance are now being brought close to Jesus, reconciled to one another and reconciled to God. So we looked at that yesterday and I Gave it, I started with a story of how God is working in the Muslim majority world um, to uh, really go ahead of us in bringing people to Christ. I just want to give you another story of those just to introduce it. And this is in one so-called closed country. And uh, there was a, a young Muslim lady who lived, lived next door to some Christians who were allowed to be Christians because they were from a traditional church there in the Middle East and uh, so and she got friendly with them and they started sharing with her she was getting very attracted to Jesus unfortunately this Christian couple then had a visit from another Christian who when this Muslim lady was round for a meal just hammered her you know people are very unwise when they reach Muslims sometimes you do it through relationship not through hammering them Okay, remember? <laughs> okay, and so she, this Muslim lady got very, very put off by this. She'd been seeking Christ, which was very put off by these visitors that came and just tried to unhelpfully present the gospel to her. So, she went back to her room, uh, to her house, and she said and to herself, I don't think I'll pursue this any further. It may seem as harsh as Islam. I won't pursue it any further. So she sat down for the evening. And then, and I apologize to you on theology for those who don't believe in icons yesterday. And... Uh, <laughs> Then, um, this one is interesting as well. At that moment, as she was sitting down, she felt this massive wind coming through the room she was sitting. And she imagined a storm starting outside, so she looked outside to see, and it was completely quiet outside, absolutely still. And this wind was blowing in the room where she was sitting. And then she said, I suddenly felt warmth and overwhelmed by love. She said, I didn't know what it was. So I started to speak out. And as I spoke, I was speaking in a language that I didn't understand. <laughs> and I just found myself carrying on speaking in this language. Well, the next day, I know some might think the order's not quite right, but remember Cornelius, it wasn't quite right with him either. And so uh, she went, 
next door the next day and said a very strange thing happened to me last night. Fortunately, this harsher Christian had gone home. And uh, they, and she shared exactly what had happened to her. And so they read Acts 2 with her and told her exactly what had happened to her. And she committed her life to Christ. Actually, she went out of that country and uh, went to one of our churches just outside that country where she was baptized. And now she goes regularly, she goes back into her own country and along with a number of others from that nation, then goes out for training and leadership training and so on in one of our churches. And so... God's doing great things. He's changing the world. And if I preached here for the rest of the week, I could start off with a similar story of a miracle of what God's doing in those parts of the world. So, yesterday I read the scripture at the end. I don't want to get into a new tradition. So I'm going to read it at the beginning, unusually this time. Okay, so we're going to start on with, carry on with Cain, and so we're going to read from Genesis chapter 4 and some bits of chapter 5. Cain lay with his wife. By the way, I explained about how Cain got his wife yesterday, so don't ask me. Okay, but by this time, they were multiplied across the earth because it was actually periods of 100 plus years. Cain lay with his wife and she became pregnant and gave birth to Enoch. Cain was then building a city and he named it after his son Enoch. To Enoch was born Irad and Irad was the father of Mehujael and Mehujael was the father of Methushael and Methushael, make sure you remember all these, was the father of Lamech. Lamech married two women, one named Ada and the other Zillah. Ada gave both to Jabal. He was the father of those who live in tents and raise livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all who play the harp and flute. So if you play the harp or flute, you know who your father was. Okay. Zillah also had a son, Tubal-Cain who forged all kinds of tools out of bronze and iron. Tubal-Cain's sister was Naomah. Lamech said to his wives, wives, Ada and Zillah, listen to me. Wives of Lamech, hear my words. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. If Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech 77 times. Adam lay with his wife again. This returns back in time a bit now, okay? Because many generations have passed, but then the Bible goes back. Adam lay with his wife again, and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth, saying, God has granted me another child. Uh, That's better translated, ESV says, offspring or seed. It's the word seed that was used when it talks about the woman's seed. In place of Abel, since Cain had killed him, Seth also had a son, and he named him Enosh. At that time, men began to call on the name of the Lord. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them. And he blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived for 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his own image and named him Seth. So that's referring, Seth came 130 years uh, after creation, but many sons and daughters before that. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. When Seth had lived for 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Seth lived after he had fathered Enosh 807 years, had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. When Enoch had lived for 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah for 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God and was not, for God took him. 
When Methuselah had lived for 187 years, he fathered Lamech. Methuselah lived after he fathered Lamech for 782 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Methuselah were 969 years, and he died. Okay, I don't know how often you hear preachings on this one. But, (laughs) you're going to, all right? So, the story. Cain, you remember, was wandering in the land of Nod. Sorry if you weren't here yesterday, but download it. And Cain was wandering in the land of Nod. He got wandering and insecure with a mark to protect him. And he decided to try and settle down and build a city. The first city was built by Cain. First city didn't originate in the line of faith. It originated in the line of Cain. So from that time on, Cain was no longer just nomadic. He built a city. He named the city after his son. Naming was important. Later, we find another city where people said, we want to build a city and build a tower to make a name for ourselves. Cities were to make names for people, but without God. And many cities were originally named after someone. Naming gave identity and achievement, but in this case, apart from God. Identity and achievement are things built into us as created in the image of God, which are important to be released. But they're to be released for us through God's Spirit, but here they were simply released. They wanted to produce something lasting. And then that went on through the generations of Cain, different people whose names you've now remembered very well, until we reach this man, Lamech. Now, in Lamech, we see the tension of human life even today. Our world lives in a particular tension which is summed up in this man, Lamech. Not all good, not all bad. So, Through Lamech and his children, different types of work and culture started to develop. So, Jabel became the father of nomadic pastoralists, people who live in tents, many of them still in the world today, live in tents, travel from place to place, looking after their animals. It became a very honourable profession because Abraham was one of them. Tubal Cain was the father of metal workers, was the father of engineering. We praise God for engineers, don't we? And under Lamech, this great thing started happening. People started doing engineering, you know? And the result of all that eventually is Tony Smith. Okay? Because, you know, when I first met Tony, he was... Senior in the Borough Engineers Department of Bedford Council. And so, the, and we bless God for engineering, but where did engineering come from? It came from Lamech, from Cain. Jubal was the father of all musicians. We praise God for musicians. Music-making culture developed very early, and it developed in the line of Cain, this man Lamech, and his children. Naamah, the daughter, the word means graceful or gorgeous, you could say. She was the founder of all beauty queens, okay? But, uh, and fashion icons, all right? Okay, so... She was the mother of fashion or, and beauty. So all those incredibly great things came from Lamech, 
the land of the, the line of Cain. At the same time, other things started happening in Lamech. Firstly, Lamech introduced polygamy, which is having more than one wife. Now, polygamy became a source of problems right through the book of Genesis, in fact, right through the Old Testament. It came into the people of God, caused rivalry, it caused battles in families, and so on. And so that started with Lamech as well, so that was bad. Also, he introduced terrible violence and domination through violence. Even the way he was talking to his wives, this is one of the, it's not the first poem, it's one of the early poems in scripture. The first one was, this time it is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. That was the first great poem in the Bible. But now we have another poem. And the, the tone of this poem, although it doesn't always come out in our translation, is very, very harsh. He's harshly treating his wives. Ada and Zillah, listen to me. Wives of Lamech, hear my words. The tone of voice, I hope, gives the idea of it. I've killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. Kevin, if Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech, 77 times. You could say... Lamech was the first gangster rap artist, okay, because actually, <laughs> they're all back there, you see, because <laughs> that he spoke in poetry, but it was sexual, violent poetry, and uh, was... saying he would be avenged 77 times, which, of course, was another thing. Not time to go into this Jesus reverse when Peter asked this question, how many times do I forgive my brother? No, not seven times, but 77 times. That was an allusion back to this and a total reversal of what happened. So, Lamech, you might say, the father of the mafia godfather or the estate gang leader, or the criminal boss, or the modern dictator, Lamech. All that came. So all these amazingly good things came, and awful things came. Yet, at the same time as this, it says, at that time, men began to call on the name of the Lord. Public worship became prevalent. Remember, this is to change our worldview. And what I'm going to do today, actually, is trying to change a worldview of many evangelical Christians about who divide their religious life from their secular life. This is a huge issue amongst evangelicals. It's a huge issue that sweeps across from the... Um, Often, it's, it's there in traditional evangelicalism in our nation. It's even more there in the southern states of America. And there's this worldview that I want to totally encounter and change, because the book of Genesis changes worldview. So, it was then recorded... Though going backwards in time, but relevant in worldview teaching, that Adam and Eve produced another son to replace Abel, whose name was Seth. The line of Seth raises hope again. Adam and Eve, of course, had many sons and daughters, but Seth was the start of a line of faith. In Genesis, we get the line of faith keeps starting again. So it started with Seth. It started with Shem, one of the sons of Noah, and it started with Abraham, who came from Shem's line. The line of faith starts coming, in, um, that's, and that was God's plan to put the whole world right again. In the, early, in the earlier Genesis, there's lots of contrast, the voice of God and the voice of the snake. God's pronouncement of judgment, but his pronouncement of grace. Two brothers, two wives, two births, Cain the firstborn of an ungodly line, Seth, the firstborn of a godly line. And, she, and he was called by Eve prophetically. Eve was, one, Eve was first prophetess. 
Uh, she prophesied, as I said yesterday, Cain and Abel's their names. She prophesied here and used the term not man, but offspring or seed, because she was confident through her seed, everything would be put right. It wasn't actually through Seth himself, but it was through the line of faith that eventually came to our glorious Saviour, who put everything right. Okay, so... That's what's going on here. Then we get a, a, geneal- a genealogical record, which has huge questions from our perspective. And when, when you get to Genesis chapter 5 in your quiet time, you think, what is all this? Don't you? Eh? Come on, be honest with me. <laughs> Did people really live so long? Should we work it back literally, which would make Adam and Eve 4,000 plus BC? Is that reasonable? There's also difficulty because there's difference in some of the years in different manuscripts. That one manuscript even put Methuselah surviving the flood, which was a bit odd. And uh, whereas, so actually, the, the point of this, we need to just make the following comments before I come on to what I'm going to teach to you. Not all genealogies in Scripture are complete. Often people are left out. We find that in, Gen- in Matthew. They are put in a particular format in order to bring out a, a, a world viewpoint. Some numbers could be symbolic. Enoch lived for 365 years. Other ancient people also had stories of long-living kings in ancient times, far, far longer than Genesis. In fact, actually, the book of Genesis was correcting the wrong worldview on this. They had kings that lived for hundreds of thousands of years. In fact, one ancient manuscript said in those days people were in nappies for a hundred years. Okay, and uh, just imagine that, bums. All right, and, and so the issue is not scientifically how long, and we don't know what climate conditions were at this time. Rather, this suggests it's a narrative dealing with very distant times. And, and this is the point of of, uh, Genesis chapter 5, they all died. That's the point. Lived so many years and they died. It was bringing out the mortality. And all of them died. Even Methuselah, the patron saint of geriatrics, he he lived less than a thousand years. And to God, a thousand years is as one day. You understand? It's the mortality of man that is stressed here. Well, there you are. That's those chapters. What are the world view issues? And this is very important for us. You might say, where on earth is David going with this? You wondered it yesterday, but you got there in the end. But this time, where on earth is This one's crazy. Well... Firstly, cultural advance goes hand in hand with evil advance. That's the way of the world. That's the world view that we should have. Cultural advance and evil advance both happen together. One is good, the other is not good, and we don't condemn the one that is good because of what is not good. But many Christians do. So, they developed livestock farming, a great benefit to humanity, expressing through the line of Cain, expressing man's responsible rule and responsibility for creation. They developed metalworking. I praise God that industry and technology arose, aren't you? I praise God that now... Instead, because I travel all around the world and lots of places I go to, I haven't a clue how many meetings there are, what I'm preaching on, who's going to be there, where they are. Sometimes I don't know at the beginning of the day. But I'm glad instead of therefore having to carry around ten thick files of notes, it's all on the iPad, even though it came from the land of Cain, the line of Cain. You understand? You know, this isn't upholding the godliness of Steve Jobs. This is saying, I praise God for technology that has developed 
within the line of Cain. I praise God for it. Developed music. The arts have so blessed the human race. Where would we be without it? God has wanted through his image in the ungodly line of Cain to bless us all. But the world view of the Bible is that all these wonderful developments can go hand in hand with the effects of sin. So polygamy and domination by violence. You know, polygamy is still a bit of a problem sometimes places. I remember once I, was, I had to leave Pakistan in a hurry because uh, I'd been guarded by a whole troop of policemen instead of one while I was preaching on a Sunday morning afterwards. The senior policeman came to me and said, we can't guarantee your safety anymore. We suggest you go, you see. He said, not because he was against me. He was for me. They were protecting me. The government was protecting me. No, that's no problem. The problem was they got intelligence of something that was going to happen, so they said, you better go. So I had to try and fit into the rest of that day, having booked my flight the next morning, all the things I was supposed to be doing for the week. And at one o'clock in the morning, an elders' meeting started. (laughs) Okay, because we'd done everything else. And they said, this is one o'clock in the morning. And I said, said, David, what do we do? We've just discovered that somebody in our church has two wives. That's a good thing for one o'clock in the morning when you're flying out at seven the next morning. (laughs) Okay. If you were Russian now, you'd say, what did I say? But you're too polite. Okay. All right, okay. And so... <laughs> well, that, <laughs> what I said was, we need to find out where the covenant was entered into. Because God honors covenant, and although no one can be in leadership with two wives... We can't either teach people to breach covenant, as wasn't done in the Old Testament. I shocked you on that. Okay? But covenant is covenant. But the person could obviously never come into leadership. Right. Okay. (laughs) I shocked you, haven't I? All right. You see... Come on, you want to reach the nations, don't you, Jeremy? You get... <laughs> no, I'm not, I'm not giving them any ideas. <laughs> oh, oh, dear. That thought would never have entered my heart, my mind. I don't know. What do some people think about? Okay. <laughs> And this is what's cool. This is outworking. All these great things coming from that land, not what happened in Pakistan. (laughs) But what I was just saying, all these great things working out show that what's called God's common grace working through all of mankind. Now, I'm going somewhere with this. You see, I'm going to do something I normally don't do when I'm preaching, but as I've got a PowerPoint, I can get away with it. I'm going to give you a few quotes. I don't like doing lots of quotes when I'm preaching. Of course, when I'm preaching through interpreter, it's hopeless. So, which is what I'm normally preaching through. But here's a few quotes. These are important. David Atkinson, one commentator, said this, God restrains the full force of evil's power by the ordering of societies, by the provision of governments, and by the refreshment of culture. God is concerned with the growth of art, of society, of technology, even in a world which is homesick for him, even for people who are out of touch with his love. The sons of Cain, too, have gifts from God. Do you understand? John Calvin, just to show I am on the right lines, he was a theologian that lived 400 plus years ago, and some people still name themselves after him. And uh, he said this, Let us know then that the sons of Cain, though deprived of the spirit of regeneration, that means not born again, I'll translate this four years ago, were yet endued, that means given, gifts of no despicable kind, which is an old-fashioned way of saying great, awesome gifts, 
Just as the experience of all ages, of ages teaches us how widely the rays of divine light have shone on unbelieving nations for the benefit of the present life. And we see at the present time the excellent gifts of the Spirit diffused through the whole human race. God's so good. He makes his sun shine on the righteous and the unrighteous and he gives culture to both. And sometimes the unrighteous seem to have more of that. They did here. Another commentator. Genesis is making the point that through the disobedient line of Cain, many of the world's significant cultural discoveries emerge. The point may provide another illustration of the grace of God at work in this fallen line. They too have an important and wholesome contribution to make to God's world. One is reminded of the Greeks and their contributions in the areas of art and philosophy, and of the Romans and their legal and political institutions. They produced what the Hebrews did not. Wow. This is a biblical worldview. This honors those made in the image of God. We still need to see them saved. Don't misunderstand me. Now, because in the New Testament, through the woman's seed conquering Satan, God is not just making a few individuals right with him, wonderfully true though that is. The apostles, and therefore we, preach not an individual gospel, but the gospel of the kingdom. That's what they preached, the gospel of the kingdom. The book of Acts starts with Jesus met with his disciples and talked to them about the kingdom of God. The book of Acts ends with Paul was in his house arrest and he talked to everybody who came him about the kingdom of God. When a, a book of that time had one word at the one expression at the beginning and one expression at the end, it means the whole of this book is about the king, about that. The book of Acts is the kingdom of God. It is establishing God's rule through the earth. Christ now rules, and the plan through the gospel is to bring all to the obedience of faith, to give Christ authority everything. We are salt and light in this world with the aim of bringing everything under Christ's rule as we engage with this world to redeem people and all they do in business, engineering, arts, domestic life, all under the authority of Christ. Because as Jeremy put it so well, so I don't have to repeat it in any detail, God's plan is to unite everything under the authority of Christ. Ephesians chapter 1. You understand me? So, the kingdom will advance. Salt and light from the church will work out in engineering, in music, in all these things. But we also say, thank you God for your common grace given to these people created in your image and we receive that gladly as gifts from God but as the kingdom of God grows it will still always be in conflict with the line of Cain with boastful Lamech who said I'll kill people, I'll take polygamy I'll be immoral and so on do you understand? but God doesn't say because they're immoral don't take their good things this is important because Christians have thought differently I remember going to early Bible weeks. We've referred to that a few times. It's, you have to forgive. Some of us have been around for a while and a little nostalgia. I know nostalgia isn't what it used to be. But the... <laughs> but... Uh, <laughs> but... I remember all our young people going to Bible weeks and being told by someone to destroy all their records. And they did. Beautiful records destroyed. This isn't a biblical worldview. And in the New Testament, Paul takes this up and he says this. Sorry, I'm scaring you. You can get me off the platform anytime you like, Jeremy. It's all right. Okay. He wasn't. <laughs> Oh, I'm sorry. In those days, oh dear, 30 years ago, you did not 
download from iTunes, you bought a round thing of plastic and stuck it on this strange machine, which you put a, a, a needle on it, and, went, and then it started having great music. <laughs> oh, sorry. I'm usually okay contextualised culturally. I'm missing it totally. Paul says, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. And Gordon Fee, another quote, I'm sorry, says this, this sentence offers clear evidence that the distinctions made between secular and sacred are most often of our own making. That's not Paul's or the Bible's. Paul takes a different view, that being in Christ sanctifies whatever else one is and does, so that what is honourable, lovely and pleasing, as long as it is also worthy of praise, is also embraced by life in Christ. Although the articulation of a later time, this passage seems to embrace the notion of common grace, which is what I've talked to you about. Here is where Mozart and Beethoven, not only Bach, come under Christian embrace. Okay, now, just again, just so that you're all culturally aware, Bach was a Christian, okay, whereas Mozart and Beethoven weren't quite. All right, and <laughs> you could say, just, you know, Coldplay and Elbow and not just Delirious, all right? <laughs> okay. <laughs> I, I wonder who to make the modern equivalent of Bach. I thought of David Fellingham. But, you know, we have to... <laughs> and this is important. This is the biblical worldview. Not a question of Christian music or Christian art or Christian theatre, but recognising the good in creativity in all as created in the image of God. Christians, therefore, need to participate in arts and culture in order that not, and not despise it or live in a Christian cultural ghetto with Christian music. You got it? The whole earth is to come under his authority. This is the gospel of the kingdom. Similarly for technology and business and agriculture, but Christians don't seem to have much, so much difficulty with those. Don't know why. They came from Cain as well. It doesn't stop you going being an engineer. You understand? God, in his sovereignty, develops cultures businesses and agriculture for the benefit of those he has created. And through the creative gifts he has given. But that often develops alongside godlessness and immorality and violence. That needs to be resisted by the church while embracing the good. And that's our job, to bring everything under the authority of Christ. Even the concept of the city started with Cain. Didn't start with Abel or Seth. Yet it is God's end time plan. Man started walking with God in a garden, but ends up living with God in a city. But a garden city. With trees down by the water of life. You know? So, God even embraced this concept from the line of Cain, obviously in accordance with his predeterminate purpose, and embraced it into our future so that Abraham, though he wandered in tents, was looking for a city whose builder and maker is God, where all the culture and everything else redeemed could come in. That's what the city represents. And there are godly men in that who work with, walk with God. Like Enoch. He walked with God like God walked with man in the garden. 
we still can know what is to be conscious daily of God's presence. It's not only what we do for God and his kingdom, but a daily intimacy with him. And Enoch was an example for all of us. And almost like, you know, if Jesus doesn't return, one day you will be no more. And though you die, unlike Enoch, who, along with Elijah, seemed to go in some other way, although you will die, for you, that death is just like Enoch. It is walking with God, going to be with God, until God has put everything right, created a new heaven and new earth, gives you a new body to enjoy the new earth. That's where you'll be. You understand, you're not going to float on clouds forever. You're in the presence of Jesus when you die. And they can say, we are not anymore, but we're with Christ far better, awaiting what Christ will do when he restores the earth and brings together all the glorious culture as well as the glorious beauty of the original earth. Because the new earth will be better than the one that the old earth he created, because in it has been worked out the plan of redemption and the taking of the image of God, expressed in loads of different cultures all through the world, with all these amazing things that have happened. You might even have your iPad in the new heaven and the new earth. You never know. Okay, the way it's presented in Scripture is in language that they could understand, which is everyone under his own vine and under his own fig tree. I'm not sure that would be the image used today. But do you understand? It's glorious. Because it's God's plan. As I say, Jeremy said so brilliantly that first evening, to unite everything in heaven and earth under Christ. This is a biblical worldview. It isn't a sacred and secular. I remember, I don't know, I could be misunderstood on this, but I remember there was a, a, rev, a revival, so-called, that was promoted widely a few years ago which was supposed to be the end time revival. And to be honest, the first time I saw it on the television, I felt this isn't of God, but I didn't, want, I didn't rejoice in being proved right. But I went to a church, and everyone was absolutely crazy about it. It was one of our churches, and they were watching it all night. And, and one person said to me, young people now. The person who picked me up from the airport drove me. She said to me, it's fantastic. Because everyone's so caught up in this revival. Young people aren't listening to secular music anymore. They're just watching the revival. To be honest, that worried me before I saw it. Because it's not the biblical worldview. <laughs> do, you, do you understand? God's common grace is at work through the line of Cain. Redeemed where people come to Christ, but even what is produced is redeemed if it's beautiful. So if the music is beautiful, or the art is beautiful, the craft is beautiful, it's to be admired even if the person doing it is like Lamech. So we don't say, therefore, have two wives, or live a, you know, polygamy in the East, they do it. You know, four wives at the same time. In the West, it's polygamy by instalments. You know, you just divorce and remarry. You know? And you say, well, that's terrible. Yes, it is terrible. And the church resists that. So with every culture, you say, what's beautiful? And the music well, may be beautiful, produced by people who are not beautiful in their lifestyle. you praise God for the line of Cain and you seek to bring everything under the authority of Christ. This is a biblical worldview from this passage in Genesis. It's there right at the beginning. So, let's walk with God 
in the midst of that. But it tells you something else. Because we, at this time, begin, we begin, we call on the name of the Lord. And so, there are four worldview lessons from this. Okay, I'm not to conclusion. I'm not sure I was quite caught up with you. Okay, can you run on to... Sorry, I jumped a bit. Do forgive me. Four worldview lessons. Firstly, and this is one I've stressed, God's common grace in culture, technology, work, business, and so on. That's God's common grace, which we embrace and we're thankful for. Secondly, God's spreading of his image through the generations and across the world. That's why you get these generations. It starts off with creating the image of God and then spread across the world. So now, you see, there's loads of amazing different cultures. It's so exciting. It's spread across the world. It's all different. As John Piper said, God is more glorified in diversity than in uniformity. (laughs) And so I love cross-cultural mission because I get to see other cultures. And every culture is needed, just like every language is needed. On the day of Pentecost, when the curse of Babel was broken, they didn't go back to speaking one language again. They all understood in their own language. Why? Because every language is needed to glorify God. When you speak in tongues, you say every language is needed to glorify God. All across the world. Every language and every culture. I just, I just so love going into other cultures. I think, wow, now I find strongholds in those cultures. But I you know, left a few of them behind in England as well. <laughs> but I also find beauty. And to glorify the wonderful God, the creator of the universe, who in Christ is redeeming everything, every culture is needed to demonstrate his glory. I just love it. See, cultures are all different strengths. I've just come back from the Moscow Bible Week. Now, what they do every time, unfortunately, we're smaller numbers now because... One time, a few years ago, we went to our site and the FSB, that's the successor of the KGB, threw us out. And say, you can't hire these places anymore as Christians. So we have to have a much smaller Bible week now. But even when it was large and now it's smaller, one evening after the main meeting, don't miss a chance for the main meeting, after the main meeting, they have a, a cultural thing. Starts usually, it's, it's, it starts usually 11 or 11.30 at night. So your Bible week. And, I mean, they are fantastic. I mean, every time, every new person I take on the team is absolutely amazed at what they can do. Took two young guys with me this time. Said, How are they doing that? And it's just, because, you see, if you've been oppressed for centuries, the only freedom is in the arts. Can't do anything else. But that means, and it's why we know that, don't we? Musicians, ballet dancers. It's fantastic. And they always put on some show. It goes on till, I know, one or two in the morning. And uh, of course, it's at the Moscow Bible Week, it's usually minimum 35 degrees, sometimes 40 degrees, and beautiful sunshine and blue skies. And. Uh, <laughs> So, and this time, I wonder what they'll do this time. So they started, they did loads of things. They started off, you're given a number and you have to get your group through your number. And then they announced, they said, right, this, those were this number. And they said, every group had to do a certain, plan a certain sort of dance 
They had three minutes to plan it, and they wouldn't know the music until it started playing. <laughs> so they said, this group, you do gypsy dancing. This group, you do Latin dancing. This group, you do Irish dancing. This group, you do Russian dancing. That's a bit easier for them. This group, you do Jewish dancing. You've got three minutes to plan it. Then the music will start. Out Europe come. I mean, it was incredible. Yeah, the Irish went first. They weren't Irish, they were Russians. But, and it looked like Michael Flatley and Riverdance straight away. <laughs> it was just amazing. And I praise God I get the chance to go to Russia. Do you understand? And every culture has things like that. I was in Turkey. They, you know, they, they decided to have a little fun evening. And they told me it would be well at the beginning because they, they said, David, we want you to preach less and we want to have more fun this time. I said, all right. <laughs> so they're having this fun evening because, you know, I'm flexible. And <laughs> two minutes before the fun evening, they said, David, will you teach us tonight? We so enjoyed this morning. I said, it's the fun evening. He said, well, we'll stop halfway through the fun evening and you can preach. <laughs> so we had this, again, amazing fun evening and all sorts of dancing and stuff. And yeah, I love cultures. It's all needed to glorify God. Aren't you praise God for his common grace through the line of Cain and Lamech's children? And please, please, please do not... Have a spiritual, secular worldview. Have a worldview, everything under the authority of Christ. And that is why we must reach every culture, to see every cultural's glories be brought at the feet of Jesus and used to glorify him now and in the new heaven and new earth. Do you understand? Ah, oh, we have a great time, you know. It's a great time seeing different cultures. Oh. Yeah, the... They, they've given me a bit longer, by the way, because right, of the offering. And uh, so, <laughs> so they started interrupting Smith. Now they, <laughs> I forgot what I was going to say now. So it's just, I just so love it. The other time, I was, last summer I remember, I was watching television. One evening I watched Prom's concert for the Royal Albert Hall. It was fantastic. The next night, I saw Coldplay at Glastonbury. It was fantastic. I rejoice in the... Sorry if that's not your taste. I rejoiced in the glory of what God has done. And we say, all under Christ, but we must go to every culture to see them redeemed so that what that culture has can be brought under the feet of Christ. So this is also a plea for cross-cultural mission. You understand? It is. I'll get it in somehow. But I want you to have a biblical worldview and be involved in cultural redemption. Okay?